Hello, I'm excited you found your way here. I'm your host, Ashley Rennick, and you're listening to Waldorfy. In each episode, I explore and explain Waldorf education and its anthroposophical roots. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this first episode of the sixth season of the show. In this episode, I'm speaking with a very special guest, listener favorite, in fact, author of You Are Your Child's First Teacher, Rahima Baldwin-Dancy. Last week, the Waldorfy podcast passed a huge milestone, 200,000 individual downloads of Waldorfy episodes. Wow. I say this in every episode, but thank you all so, so much for listening in. There is so much interesting content coming for you in this season, which by the way, is all about Waller for young children, birth through age seven. This month, we're doing a big Patreon drive to increase Patreon membership. What is Patreon? Patreon is a platform where you can support creators like myself to create content that you love with a small monthly contribution. There's also bonus content over in that space that you can't access anywhere else. I talk more about that bonus content in the trailer for this season, which can be found at waldorfie.com forward slash season six trailer. And I'll add some notes on that content on the show notes page for this episode as well. The show notes page for this episode, by the way, can be found at waldorfy.com forward slash waldorfbabies. In September, in addition to starting to offer more bonus content to Patreon members, we're also doing some awesome gift aways for randomly selected Patreon supporters. I'm giving away a gift certificate for $100 to my favorite baby carrier company ever, Sakura Bloom. At the end of this episode, I'll also be speaking with Sakura Bloom's founder, Lynn, and baby wearing expert Paige, all about the gorgeous minimal carriers made from the finest natural materials that Sakura Bloom offers. Sakura Bloom is also so offering all Waldorfy listeners free shipping at checkout. Just use the coupon code Waldorfy, W-A-L-D-O-R-F-Y at the checkout. Their website, if you want to check them out, is sakurabloom.com. So yes, yeah, stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear my full conversation with Paige and Lynn. So again, that $100 gift certificate to Sakura Bloom from Waldorfy will be gifted to a randomly selected Patreon member. Also, you can find all the details about the giftaways for Patreon members at the Patreon Patreon site, which is patreon.com forward slash Waldorfy, and Patreon is P A T R E O N. That's also where you can become a member. So other gifts will be gifting away to the Patreon supporters, a $100 gift certificate to Palumba. Palumba offers the Waldorfiest, loveliest Waldorf toys, books, and art supplies, a one-year subscription to Sparkle Stories. This is huge. You'll get to hear me speak more about Palumba and Sparkle Stories later in this episode. One person will be selected to receive one place in Megan Wilson's autumn course, Routine, Ritual, Rhythm, and Reverence, Autumn in the Home. You get a whole bunch when you sign up for this course, and I'll link to it from the show notes page for this episode so you can learn more. We're also selecting three people to receive one-year subscriptions to Toy Making Magic. Have you wanted to make your own Waldorf toys? Now you can. Each month through Jessica's video subscription service, you can create your own Waldorf toys made with love of materials you can choose yourself. Jessica's husband is an incredible videographer and you're going to love what she can help you to make. I'll also link to Toy Making Magic on the show notes page for this episode. So all of these lovely gifts will be gifted again to Patreon supporters in a drawing where we'll randomly select recipients for each gift and we'll do 
do that on October 2nd, 2021. Accept the drawing for Megan's course, which we'll do on the 25th of September, 2021, since her course starts on September 30th. So you'll just want to make sure that you sign up to become a Patreon supporter before then, if you're interested in potentially receiving one of these lovely gifts. Also know that you can cancel your Patreon support at any time. I mean, I would so love for you to support forever, but you can cancel your support, be that or $20 pledge in any month. Again, the place to learn more about Patreon membership, the giftaways, bonus content, etc. is patreon.com forward slash Walderfee. Now let me introduce you to returning guest, Rahima. Rahima Baldwin-Dancy is internationally known as an early childhood and parenting educator. Her book, You Are Your Child's First Teacher, encourages natural development from birth to age six and has been translated into eight languages. She was a Waldorf kindergarten teacher and founding board member of Lifeways North America, both based on the indications of Rudolf Steiner. She currently provides online courses for parents and childcare providers through Lifeways, that's Lifeways NorthAmerica.org. Rahima also worked for many years as a childbirth activist and midwife. Her book, Special Delivery, was one of the leading books in the home birth and midwifery movements. She and her husband have raised four adult children and enjoy five grandchildren. They live in a co-housing community now in Boulder, Colorado. Hello, Rahima. Thank you so much for joining me again on the show. I so loved having you the first time. And I know when I wanted to do this whole series on Waldorf birth through age seven, you were the first person that came to mind. Obviously, uh, you know, your book pertains to that age range. And then, of course, you had mentioned Faith, who I got to speak with already, actually, for the show, um, your daughter, who's lovely. And yeah, thank you again so much for speaking with me and just being here to share your wisdom. Yeah, it was my pleasure. And of course, I had a background of, of midwifery many years before getting into uh, Waldorf education. So we can jump right in here. I'm wondering about pertaining to babies now. What insights does Steiner bring about babies and the child under one? Well, I think one of the key things that he brings is an awareness of how open the senses are. And, you know, Steiner wasn't the only one to say this. I mean, Montessori said the same thing. Le Boyer, you know, said he had attended 3,000 births before he realized how completely open the newborn was. And that if they were crying when they were born, it was because we were treating them badly, probably, or because they were, you know, had, had been through a big process. So I think that, you know, this is this is something that is sort of obvious, and yet it's not known. It's not, it's just coming into general knowledge. I mean, it used to be that surgeries were done on infants uh, without anesthesia. They would just paralyze them because they didn't think they felt pain. They would hold them upside down and whack them to start breathing because they think they didn't feel pain. So, you know, this awareness of how completely open the senses are, not just the newborn, but really throughout early childhood and especially in the first year, that's a gift that Steiner brings for sure. And I know, as you have mentioned to me before, this and so much of what we'll discuss today is not like a you should do with your baby. And I actually, you had kind of introduced that whole uh, mindset to me, which has been really helpful in my parenting. Thank you. To try to just like get rid of the shoulds. There's so many shoulds or Steiner says, and I like that we're kind of coming at this from either indications he gave or observations he had and looking at it through that lens, which I think is is important. Yeah, because once you understand child development, then you can say, how do I meet this? And that's, of course, what Waldorf education tries to do 
with you know early childhood and, and elementary school and high school education. And I think that if we look at the senses, you know, how completely open they are, this really calls on us to both stimulate them and protect them. And our society is into stimulate. You know, put the mobile, get the flashing lights, have the flashcards, make sure you have the black and white, whatever's. And that kind of extra stimulation isn't necessary. You know, the stimulation that they need is touch, is rocking, is skin to skin contact, is love, is your voice. Those things that parents have done naturally for a gazillion years, that's the kind of stimulation that will lead to healthy development. The added gizmos, wismos, expensive items, et cetera, they really aren't necessary. And we need to protect the senses also, you know, and I'm not taking the two month old to the rock concert or, you know, being aware if we go into a big uh, Kmart or Target or whatever, that we put a cap on the baby because the fluorescent lights and the stimulation really penetrates the whole body of the, of the baby. So I think those were things that I didn't know. I mean, I took my, uh, took my little 10 day baby out and, you know, the, an older woman said, how old is your child? Oh, 10 day. Well, that's dreadful. She said, you shouldn't have him out here. And I thought, well, how silly. And then, you know, really coming back to this awareness that they're so open to all sensory stimulation. It goes really deeply into every sense organ and every, every cell of their body. Yeah. And it's interesting you bring up what our culture expects. As we're recording this, uh, my littler one is just six and a half weeks old. And I'm sure so many parents of child number two or three or four can relate. I feel like just culturally, there's this expectation we need to do things with our baby or babies or entertain them. And when I'm busy with my other three, my three-year-old, I often have him just laying kind of on a blanket under a window where he's kind of looking out at trees and the light and that sort of thing. And I feel, I kind of feel guilty sometimes that I'm not like doing, he's a very relaxed baby. He just likes to kind of look out the window or he's on his belly. And I feel like, oh, I should be, I should be doing more already, you know, and how culture really puts that pressure on parents and carers. That's, it's intense at times. And it's even I, you know, we've spoken before and I have this understanding that he, he, his needs are being met. Still, I have this like cultural pressure on me, I feel. Well, it's also why birth order is a reality. It makes a difference because when you're second, third, whatever child, you don't have the time to put all that attention in and to do all those things. And they do just fine. You know, they're more, the children as adults are more relaxed. If they're second or third child, it's not the same as this alpha first child always relating with the adult. So I think that, you know, in earlier times, let's say pioneer days, you know, there wasn't the time, even with the first child, to devote oneself to uh, to stimulating them. You were churning the butter and canning the peas and doing all these other things. So it is much more, it's a much more natural and more relaxed approach. And natural development, I think that's one of the things that really Steiner pointed out, is to trust this unfolding of the natural development. Babies know best how to how to do it, how to grow what they need. And our thing, our thing as intel, you know, intelligent and consciousness oriented and devoted parents in the 2020s is to inform ourselves about what is okay and what, you know, what is what is natural. Because we look at the child and as you say, our tendency is what our culture has given us. And I'm wondering when we're talking about the insights of Steiner and child development, how what was his insight on what was happening spiritually with the child once they're born and emerging in those first, you know, days and, and weeks? Yeah, 
I think this is, it was a real gift to me to find someone who really talked about the whole human being, body, soul, spirit, not just the senses and, and so forth. So, yeah, Steiner really enables us to, to recognize that we're spiritual beings in a physical body. And that's true for us as adults. It's especially true for young children. They are so huge in their spirit and their bodies are so tiny and so helpless and everything is new. And, you know, one little air bubble is the end of the world in terms of pain. And to recognize, though, that they're also spiritual beings and that they're coming with a sense of what's going on and what their task is in life and how to do this. And they'll have certain limitations and they'll have certain gifts. And if we can, that, that can help us relax, I think, and really uh, be more an observing and an accompanying. In a sense, we're midwifing our children all throughout their lives rather than having to make it happen. Yes, that makes so much sense. And just being a keen observer, I feel that's kind of been the proof is in the pudding experience for me going to my first parent-child class listening to what the teacher was telling us about what his understanding was of the world. He was six months old at the time, my, my older one, and how he was kind of unfolding in the world. And and it all made sense. Like I could observe what she was saying happening in in him, in, at least in the physical sense I could understand. In the spiritual sense, I was not experiencing it the same way he was, obviously, and not able to observe the same way as the as the physical stuff as it was happening. Right. But it lets us know that, the, that the, like, say, the infant's consciousness is not the same as ours. You know, in a sense, they have universal consciousness. They don't have a sense of self yet. They don't have a sense of, of inner and outer and separation. They are connected to the mother totally. They are connected to whatever physical sensation comes along. There, that, that gradual sense of separation, sense of I, you know, I found it just fascinating the way Steiner says that develops over time, especially in the first two years. And so if we just kind of keep that as an idea, then we can watch, like you're saying, does this, does this fit? Does it work? So I'm wondering now, talking more about the physical development and speaking to the Waldorf approach, what does the Waldorf approach see as the key task of the developing one-year-old? Well, it's really to, to penetrate the body, to get control of the body. And we always talk about growing up, but in the, you know, in the Waldorf, people tend to talk about growing down. And what does this mean? You know, it's because the head is so much larger in the infant than in an adult. And that's, of course, because of the massive brains that we have as a species and because the child has to be born after nine months gestation or it's not going to fit through the pelvis. So the head is huge of the newborn compared to the rest of the body. If you've ever seen a baby horse or a baby lamb, they're all limbs. They're all legs. They're ready to run after the first you know, 15, 20 minutes. And that's just so opposite. You know, Our babies have to really get control of the body. And the first thing they have control of is gain control of is the eyes. And so if there's, you know, something moves, they'll, they'll turn toward it. And then the hearing, if you clap your hands, the baby should turn toward that sound. So they're starting really in the head and then penetrating down. If you watch your baby, the, you know, the next task around three months is to roll. Well, rolling in, involves the rib cage, the, the torso. It's really moving that uh, middle sphere of the body. And then they'll notice their hand crossing their eyesight and they might grab that. And so, you know, to penetrate the limbs, it really takes a whole year to 
penetrate down to the, to the feet and to, to gain uprightness. And so really the task of the first year is penetrating the body, gaining control of it, getting rid of those uh, re uh, reflexes that are present at birth. Like babies have a stepping reflex at birth, but that's not walking. That has to be replaced by walking, right, later on. So really the analogy I give is like if you were – floating in a, in a deep, warm tub of water, and you couldn't, you know, you didn't even know where the inside and the outside was, you were just blissed out, you were relaxed, and suddenly somebody pulled a plug, let's say you were in a big pool, heated pool, somebody pulled a massive drain, and whew, there you are, suddenly lying on the bottom of this pool, and you can't get up for a year. Yeah, that's baby's experience coming into gravity. They suddenly have gone from this weightless state and then the womb to flat on their backs, right? They really are trying to overcome gravity through their own will efforts, through their own muscular development, through their own seeing other people being vertical and coming into verticality. And that's the task of the first year. And it's huge. I mean, it's the joy on a, on a one-year-old's face, whether it's at nine months or you know, 16 months when they really learn to walk on their own. Ha, they've done it. They're so pleased. You know, This is a real accomplishment. So that's the real task of the first year. And again, a little, some of that's a little kind of contradictory, I feel like, to common cultural understanding of what babies need developmentally. Like we have so many things that prop our babies into sitting positions or like assist them in walking, I guess. And that was one of the things actually I read, I think it's a Magda Gerber book, Your Self-Confident Baby, that talks about the baby achieving these vertical positions on their own. And I read that actually right when I had my first. And I remember watching him learn to sit. He didn't sit until uh, independently, like fully get up to sitting by himself independently on all, until almost, I mean, he could kind of sit at seven months, but I think really like eight months. He Basically sitting and crawling kind of happened at the same time, but he did all of it himself. I never, I never sat him up. I never held him sitting up. He really achieved those positions on his own. And it was really incredible to watch and how, how that happened. I think, I feel like I, I was kind of inspired by the very first day that we met and that the moment of the breast crawl where he was put onto me and kind of, you know, crawled up to nurse and um, just being mesmerized that babies can do that. You know, if, if given the opportunity, it's really, really incredible what they're capable of. Yeah. And th this gift of free movement and not strapping them in and putting them into positions they can't hold and trying to rush them. That's a gift. You know, that's the gift we can give our infants in the first year is freedom of movement and that we're, you know, that we're present and we're observing. And that's where, you know, Magda Gerber and uh, Emmy Pickler had the same insight that Steiner had, you know, Pickler and Steiner were working around the same time in Europe. And, you know, again, it, it, it's, it isn't rocket science. These things are there to observe, but it's not the cultural norm. And so the Rye approach, resources for infant educators and the Waldorf approach are really very similar for the infants, which is to, you know, let them be on their backs and let them develop those those abdominal muscles through through baby crunches, abdominal crunches and through raising their, their legs and then turning over and pushing up themselves and learning to crawl by maybe seeing a, a toy or something just a couple feet further away from where their eye is. So yeah, and to watch it happen, uh, I really watched with my uh, granddaughter go through that and they're not bored. 
you know, we think, oh my gosh, a baby on its back is going to be bored. They need to be up in a in a sitting position where they can see me and see everything that's going on. But they're not. They're just content to be in the moment, to exercise themselves, to move, to coo and bring somebody over. I mean, they get a lot of attention. They, you know, if there are other adults or children, everybody's going to be passing by and relating. They're not bored. You know, this boredom idea is that we have to stimulate and be on top of them and, and have them be so visually oriented toward us all the time. It's not necessary for healthy physical development. And I'm wondering, you know, we, we brought up now the Rye approach and where it kind of is crossing or aligning a little bit with the Waldorf approach, what your thoughts are on baby wearing? Because I know in, I think with a more, if you're more strictly adhering to that kind of Rye approach that baby wearing isn't, they're not so big with that. Um, and my older one, he, I didn't wear him as much because I didn't have to. I mean, I could have him laying next to me or while I was doing something. And my second now is living in the baby carrier. And that's just how I get you know, through the day and things done. And he's so warm and secure in there. And I'm wondering, of course, you are a midwife and what your thoughts are on that and how that is supporting development if it is at all. Yeah, well, baby wearing is throughout the world. I mean, it's, it's again, it's, it's cultural, but it's cross-cultural. It's really in all the cultures where the, the mother wraps some kind of shawl or some kind of length of fabric around and wears the baby so that she can continue with the work that she needs to do. So it's, it's totally, it's a totally natural response. And in the first, especially the first six to eight weeks, it returns the baby to the womb. I mean, they are so curved. Their backs have been curved. They've been inside. They've been held in that way. That continuing that some hours a day is just, again, a natural way. It's so calming. So this swaddling is coming back. And I find it fascinating that, you know, there are some cultures where you want to swaddle the baby straight as a candle, they say, and really wrap them to a board. You know, certainly Native American was that way. In Russia, it was that way. Other, you know, some cultures have it straight and other cultures are what we're doing now. The, the baby is all rolled up in a little ball and is on your front. And it's also very accessible to your heartbeat. So, you know, we have to look at what's cultural and what's, and what's not and what are our ideas. But as they start to move, as they start to explore, they will break out of the swaddling wrap at night or, you know, when they're lying and, and they'll, they'll want more movement. And so being sensitive to that doesn't mean that you still can't wear them, you know, during the day when you're busy or when they're fussy or whatever, but they want more movement. So then freedom of movement, letting them really be on their back, open to, uh, you know, kind of seeing, seeing the world as it's around them is kind of like a, an echo of where they've come from. They've really come from just a massive cosmic spheres. And so that's that's appropriate to have that freedom. And then, you know, like I say, they will swing their leg over, they will roll. And that's, as you, as you know, as an experienced mother, never leave a baby unattended on a bed or whatever, because the first time they roll over, it's the first time and it surprises you and they can roll right off. So it's, uh, it's something they achieve by themselves on their own. And it also, in kind of the Waldorf approach connects a little bit, baby wearing or swaddling, I suppose, connects with another piece, which is warmth. And that's also connected with the physical needs. So within this approach that we're talking about, what are the physical needs of the baby under one and then up until two? Yeah. You know, to me, the physical and emotional needs are really combined. 
they're really, they shouldn't be separated. And when we did separate them, and this is why, you know, the studies in orphanages were, we were relating to the physical needs. They need nourishment. They need to have their diapers changed, cleanliness. They need to be kept warm. They need oh, to be able to be in an environment where they can sleep. If we separated that from the love and the touch and the you are special to me and I am here for you, that, you know, kind of emotional loving bonding, the babies didn't thrive. They had failure to thrive syndrome in these orphanages. And this was after World War II, even nobody could figure out why. And finally, and of course, Pickler worked out of orphanages. Montessori was, was some of that as well, of saying, well, it's because they're, they're not in relationship. There's no other being, the adult there saying, you matter to me. I'm, I'm here for you. I love you, ideally. But even just a caregiver to say, let's relate during this time. So I think one of the one of the gifts that the Rye approach brought was use the the activities of of daily care, changing a diaper, washing the baby, whatever it is, as times to connect. And they found that doing that in institutions made a huge difference. You know, it's not playing with the baby, but connecting when you're there with them of saying, we're here together. We're doing this together. Yes, I found that, especially now with my second, where I feel so busy and all these, you know, moments of the day that those moments in changing a diaper, changing clothes or, you know, nursing that speaking to him about what's happening and talking about it in the moment is, feels like I'm doing, I'm doing something to connect and, and be there for him. And, in a loving way, even though they're like things that we see is just kind of the function, like the functionality of just taking care of him. And it, you can see him, I can see already as he's kind of just opening his eyes to the world, how he's connecting with that. Mm. Have you been looking for something specially crafted to entertain and enrich your child's developing mind? Wouldn't it be amazing if this content promoted values like kindness, empathy, and respect to help build a gentler world? Would you love a break but feel a little guilty about turning the TV on? Then you're going to be pretty excited to learn about Sparkle Stories. With Sparkle Stories, your family can enjoy a world of 1,300 plus original audio stories for ages three and up. Sparkle Stories is dedicated to helping the world go a little slower and be a little kinder. Their audio-only approach invites children to adventure, wonder, and dream in a safe and secure way. Audio Stories are a low-pressure way to make even the shyest of readers hungry for more adventure and learning. My son is three and a half, and I love that I can search for stories based on his age or story topic. For him, I love that stories are recorded slowly for young ears, ensuring maximum comprehension and enjoyment. It's been such a nice way to build a quiet rest time into our active days. I've also gifted Sparkle Stories to my six-year-old niece twice now, and I know she enjoys the longer tales and ongoing series. My favorite thing about Sparkle Stories, it is such a great alternate to the TV. Their audio-only stories spur children to use their imaginations and grow their curiosity compared to image-based entertainment like TV. Especially having our new little one in the house, I love using Sparkle Stories to keep my three-year-old's mind engaged and having fun while I get things done. I've teamed up with Sparkle Stories to offer an extended 30-day free trial so you can enjoy the entire library of Sparkle Stories, over 1,300 original audio stories for ages three and up. And you can trust me, you will enjoy. To sign up, just visit sparklestories.com forward slash sign up and use code WALDORFY. That's W-A-L-D-O-R-F-Y. I just love Sparkle Stories selection of gentle stories for growing minds. So coming back to the warmth yeah. aspect, what, what about the warmth 
pertaining to, it's really, I feel within the Waldorf approach, this is talked about so much. So why is warmth so important at, at yeah. this at this age? Well, there are, there are several reasons. One is physiological. Yeah, the head is so much larger, as I said, and we, we lose so much heat through our heads. This is why camping and hiking and so forth, if, you're, if your feet are cold, put on your hat. Try to really contain your body warmth and keep it from going out the top of the head. So that's important for the newborn because they're, you know, they're almost all head. The other thing is that they don't have the ability to regulate their body temperature the way that an older child or an adult does. And so it's really a very narrow range. And this is even more true if they're at all premature, obviously. So that's another reason to really be the one who is providing this warmth. But Steiner explains that warmth really relates to kind of a funny phrase, how incarnated we are. So let me just rephrase that by saying how awake we are. All right. So if you think of yourself, let's say you've had a nice, you're in a, at a big uh, formal lunch, yeah, you know, at two o'clock, whatever, Thanksgiving, and you're in a hot room and man, you start getting sleepy, right? You just like, I'm out of here. I'm you know, I just as soon leave my body, go off to dreamland. And uh, but when it's cold, I mean, my favorite days are fall days where it's just brisk and there, there's a little bit of a breeze and it's, I feel like, oh, I can do anything. I love to go out in it. I'm, I'm incarnated. I'm in my body and my will forces are strong. So the, the coolness is more incarnating. The warmth is a little bit more excarnating, a little bit raised out. And so babies, because they're so much still in the spiritual world, they're just coming into their bodies. They're still landing here on earth. Keep them, keeping them a little bit on the warmer side is something that, again, cross-culturally you find throughout the world. The grandmas say, well, put a hat on that baby or put a blanket around it or whatever, keep it a little bit warmer. And we tend to either be unaware of it or we think, oh, it doesn't matter. And sometimes we have on a sweater or a flannel shirt or something, and the baby's there with you know, short sleeves, doesn't have an undershirt on, doesn't have, a, doesn't have a blanket over the legs. So I think we have to be aware of it's beneficial to keep them a little bit on the warmer side because then their bodies don't have to work as hard. Yeah, to stay warm, to stay incarnated. And they're not kind of slammed into the body as dramatically or as hard uh, as they are otherwise. And this is true throughout early childhood, you know, that if we can keep children saying like, dress your child, your early, your early child, your young child or your infant, like in one more layer than you're wearing or feel their, their feet and their hands. Are their feet and hands warm? That might be an indication of the rest of them rather than asking a three-year-old, are you warm enough? Well, that's, uh, you're not, you know, you're going to get an answer that, that doesn't relate because they can't sense whether they're warm enough or not. So that's about warmth. You know, warmth really relates to, uh, to love, to emotions, to physical warmth, to our ability to penetrate our body. I think it's an insight that's, that's really strong in the, in the Steiner tradition that I found. Like you say, you don't find it in any other places except in old wisdom. The grandmas, you say, keep that baby warm. And I'm wondering in your work with young children, if you've noticed, I have a couple friends that have experienced this, that they have a child who's very, like a, a heightened sensory situation is going on for them. So something like a child really cannot this is, I guess, speaking more to a young child, like they do not want to wear a hat, but it's beyond, like it's feel, it's like it feels different for them. It's, it's like too much or they don't, 
want to wear that extra layer, like layers make them feel uncomfortable. These kinds of sensory, I don't know how to describe it. Some kids, I think outgrow it, but some, some maybe not, or some materials against the skin. It's like too much. Have you encountered that in your work with, with young children and what words of advice, I guess, could you offer to those parents or, uh, or carers of, of children struggling with that? Because, you know, warmth, we, it does come up so often when we talk about this approach with young children. Yeah. Well, I go back to the newborn and say start early with the with with the with the good with the good habits, which are natural fibers. I mean, if children are wearing synthetics, you know, some some synthetics, I start to sweat, or I gotta get out of this, you know, jacket now, or this shirt is driving me crazy. Um, they're much more sensitive than we are. Babies are, and young children are much more sensitive. So the natural fibers actually breathe. You know, the cotton and the silk, you know, even the wool, the soft, very soft merino wool. So make sure you have, you know, fabrics that breathe. And then obviously not get the child overheated, but, you know, if the, if the fabric is breathing and the child has been used to wearing hats, Really, from the newborn days on, it's just the way things are. You won't get into this resistance that you're talking about, and I'll address some of that. But, you know, why do this? I talked about some on the incarnating, but the other thing is to protect the fontanelles. You know, these soft spots in the head, they really don't close for 18 months. And that's that's much longer than we think. You know, it's, it's it seems like they're closed before that. But it really, the, the brain is right under that one layer of skin. It's, it's not, uh, there's, no, there's no bone over it in a closed kind of fashion for 18 months. Then if we think about maybe the effect that fluorescent lights have on us or on a friend of ours as an adult, it's like, oh, if it's flashing at all, it just, you know, I could go, I gotta get out of here. I can't really stand this. And so the, you know, the, the more subtle vibrations, waves, radio waves, light waves, et cetera, Big department stores, uh, you know, going to Kmart or Costco or something. Whoa, those things are, are places that really can set you on edge or set the baby on edge. So having the, the head covered and really having the, the hat so that it's, you know, tied not under the chin, but maybe tied on the side. So, that the, you know, the chin isn't lying on a knot. Then you won't get into those problems. And I found also that it makes a difference in the sun. There's a there's a difference for warmth, but there's also a difference in really protecting the head from direct sunlight. And here in Colorado, we have to be especially aware of how strong the sun is for ourselves as adults. And you know, we never we I never go out without my hat in the summertime if I'm going to be out for any length of time. So those are things that it's important to realize that children are more sensitive. Back to your question, what if they're more sensitive and they're not going to stand for this kind of thing? And I think that, you know, we, we do have more children coming with sensory problems. And I think that's why they also have those, uh, I don't know what they call them, you know, thunder jackets or heavy, you know, heavy sensory jackets or blankets to really help children who are so much at the edge of, of their, their clothing, their skin, they can't stand, you know, anything to touch it. And yeah, if you're working with that, it's something you're working with. You just have to see what you can do and what you can't do. But, uh, you know, not doing hats and then starting at age four and they say, well, I don't want to wear my hat. Then that's what you're working with. You know, if you start differently, it goes differently. Right. And we were talking about natural materials with clothes, but 
as it's come up, I think, in this show before, although not for a couple of seasons, uh, natural materials is huge in the Waldorf approach. If you walk into any early uh, childhood classroom or Waldorf kindergarten, you're surrounded by natural materials. So do you want to speak to just the importance of the natural materials and why? Yeah. Yeah. When the toys are made out of natural materials or the the cloth, whatever it is that that they're playing with, it has a different feeling. I mean, you can you can tell that yourself if you're touching a piece of wood from a tree or you're touching a piece of plastic. It, it's very different. And I think that by the children being so open in a sensory fa fashion, they're also open to to subtle vibration. They're also open to what's alive or what has been alive. I mean, obviously, a, a piece of wood from a you know, branch of a tree is not still alive, but it it's coming from the natural world. It's irregular. It has texture. It's not the same. Everything is geometric. Everything is smooth. You do one thing with it. You can stack it, maybe two things, stack it vertically or stack it horizontally. But like a, a block that comes from a, a piece of a tree, it might excite the child's imagination. Well, this 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 is the daddy. And then here's a little stump of wood. And here's this is the mommy. And I've seen children doing this. And they don't tend to do that with blocks, with plastic blocks or even geometric blocks. So it encourages the the sense of touch, the relationship to aliveness, and the relationship to the imagination. So that's why the emphasis, you know, is on natural items for all three of those reasons. I'm not sure if it's from our childhood. My husband and I are both Waldorf uh, alums, and I described my our home, which we build together, our living, our main living area is like the house of many woods because we have at least four, maybe five different between our table and the mantle, which is made out of a log we cut down off the property and our cabinetry. Like we just wanted all the, we love all of the variation. And I think with natural materials, the appreciation of, I guess, craftsmanship that goes into, you know, what you can create out of those materials from the earth is both of us have a, a deep appreciation for it. And I wonder if it comes from our early Waldorf childhood days. Mm. So why is it important to focus on the basic needs at this age and not on things like flashcards or early education and enrichment classes? It's, you know, the, the, the physiology, the penetrating of the body, the gaining control, the sitting up, crawling, uh, walking, all these things take so much energy and so much of the child's own will. And then learning to speak and to talk, all of these things in the second year as well. So what we need to do is, is focus on providing a healthy rhythmical environment that allows this child to unfold in this way naturally. And if we're doing things like flashcards, and you can teach 10-month-old you know, to, to recognize something or to say something, it's conditioned response from a flashcard. I mean, it's amazing if you watch the, you know, the video, it's like, whoa, but that's not reading. You know, Jane Healy, who wrote many books on the on the neurophysiology of early childhood, she says that's the wrong part of the brain. You no, know, we don't learn to read through, through a, a conditioned response, especially in English. You know, words aren't like that. And we bring meaning to it. And a baby doesn't know what that means. It's just uh, parroting something that has gotten approval. So when we steal that energy from the physical and try to put it into memory and into flashcards and into early reading and all those kinds of things, we're really taking away this, this energy that the child needs to re actually rework the body. You know, it's interesting to me, Steiner said that 
that in the first seven years, all that energy is going into reworking the physical organs. So like if you have a hereditary tendency toward uh, diabetes, you actually might not develop it. If you've got a healthy enough early childhood and your, your forces can overcome that. And now in science, they talk about genes turning on and genes turning, you know, not being turned on where you can have identical twins and one develops the illness and the other one doesn't and they have the exact same genome. So this, to me, I always love it when science comes up with these ideas that Steiner kind of said whole cloth without the, you know, without the microscopes and without the, the theories and so forth, that yeah, it, it, what happens in early childhood turns things on or turns things off. And so you wanna really respecting the child's work that they're really trying to make their body as individual and as healthy as possible. And therefore, if we can provide the love and the good nutrition and the development of rhythm as they you know, become two and three and so forth, then we're allowing that to go on. And all this early, and classes, classes, no matter what they're about are, so like even Jimboree kinds of things, you might think, oh, well, that's, you know, that's good and it's helping my baby develop. They don't need that kind of exercise of their muscles. They know exactly what to do, lying on their back and rolling over. And they don't need the stimulation of the other kids and the noise and the colored balls and all this kind of stuff. So you're creating stress. If it's you that needs adult companionship, I'm there 100%. Find a mother taught class that you can, a parent taught class that you can go to. Find, talk to other moms at the park. You need adult stimulation, absolutely. And your baby still needs to be able to sit and pour sand from one bucket into the next and to be in a quiet environment. So classes are kind of uh, counterproductive. For myself, a lot of the things that you're describing, I if I have observed in my son or myself, my siblings with my mom, and one of the things, and you elaborate on all of what you just said so much more in your book as well. So we'll mention that at the end, but with things outside the home and classes, we did a parent and child class, as I mentioned, at a local kind of Waldorf school, but it is interesting to watch what we are hoping and wishing to be enriching for our child and what at the end of the day is actually overstimulating. And if you, I think each parent can just intuit that with their own child, you know, at the end of the day, are they melting down every day and having a hard time. Or I just noticed for me, my son, when we're just, when I spend a day that was just cooking and cleaning and he just kind of did his own thing or helped me during those activities, the whole day is just so smooth. And that's not to say, like you mentioned, I need to get out of my house and <laughs> talk to other parents. And I think that, you know, it has to be balanced, of course, as well. And yeah, I just, it's interesting when you, the very first thing or one of the very first things that was introduced to me in this uh, Waldorf parent-child class that I started uh, at with my son was just observe your child with all of these things that are kind of, or any parenting thing that somebody says to you or you're learning or trying to work in, just observe how your child reacts each day. And I find for me, a lot of what we're talking about in this approach has applied in in the sense that I have worked with it and then noticed, oh, wow, this really works. It's just this simple. And so much of our culture really is, it's telling us we need to do more. It's telling us our kids need to be able to do more and that they are enough at the end of the day. And they they are happy, you know, in their little bodies as they're developing more than, and so entertained, like you said, even from infancy, just with like the world around them, that they 
that they don't need as much as we often think that they do. So to switch gears a little bit here, I want to ask you, and you're a midwife, about pregnancy. Uh, what, if any, did Steiner give it any, any indications or any insights about the pregnant woman and how the body changes or shifts during that time and how even from in the womb we can best support a child's natural development? Yeah, you know, the, the womb is really this, this image of protection. And it's it actually, there's seven layers. If you count the skin and the muscle and the fascia and the membranes and the water, you know, there's seven layers between the outer world and the baby. The baby is so protected. And the other image is that it's like a magnifying glass. It's really focusing those energies, spiritual energies, whatever it is on, on the body, on the baby, on the baby's developing body. So I think one of the things that, uh, that we can extrapolate from that is like you don't go digging up a seed every you know three days to see if it's growing yet you don't go interrupting you don't you know you're curious oh is anything happening yet but you don't go doing an ultrasound every month you don't you know that this is really a protected a protected space a protected environment i think another thing is for the the parents, and it can be both parents, but of course the mother has kind of a 24-7 <laughs> involvement with the baby that the father doesn't necessarily have, is to, to be aware spiritually, to really try to connect. Who is this? Who is this person? Be aware of your dreams. Be aware of if a name comes to you or some object keeps appearing during the course of this pregnancy. I sometimes people know they're pregnant before, you know, before the pregnancy test. And you know, it's just we knew. And father, yes, I, well, I knew the moment we got pregnant. Whoa, it was so different. And so these are ways to, to really, like you're saying, be aware of, to test out. Is there, is there any awareness? And sometimes babies hide. I mean, I had a friend who, it was her third pregnancy. So she clearly knew what was going on. And it was, she was a midwife. And she didn't know she was pregnant for various reasons of illness and this and that until she was five months pregnant. Well, how can that, but the baby, I think the baby was hiding. The baby wasn't making itself known. Whereas I think that you know, when you talk about the glow of a pregnant woman, I think that's the baby. You know, I think people are feeling just this, this uh, I don't know, aura or fancy stuff or it, it, you know, that's the baby that's, that's really kind of there as well. So I think those are some of the things that we can, you know, we can do as pregnant parents is, is just meditate on the baby, be in connection with it. Obviously when it's a little bit bigger in the womb, you know, feel it move and, and send it your love and so forth. Those things that they matter, you know, those are things that, that can do that can matter. And then obviously self-care. I mean, we have to really say, I need a nap. <laughs> I'm beat. Uh, it's not an illness. Pregnancy is not an illness, but we don't have to be, you know, full on, full bore. Everything's just the way it was before to recognize that there's a lot going on for the pregnant woman, that you need to have good nutrition, you need exercise, you need naps, you need to have a calm environment if you can. And if you can't, if things are chaotic, emotionally, physically, whatever, don't put guilt on top of it. Really just talk to your baby and say, I'm having a hard time here, but you're okay. Everything is fine for you. 
I'm just having a bad day, you know, just really to communicate, to help yourself feel better, to to really take that time for self-care. Yes. And one of the reasons I asked as well about this period of time is I've heard it's uh, in some Waldorf schools or Waldorf programs that it can be commonplace to ask about uh, the birth or about breastfeeding when kind of applying for a program like an early childhood program or a kindergarten program. Do you know why those questions would be important for the school to know how this child was birthed or whether they were breastfed or not? And then also, yeah, so basically what, what is the reasoning behind asking those kinds of questions? Again, it's not, did you do it right? Or, you know, do you pass and does your child get in? Absolutely not. You know, and it's not the school that is trying to know it. It's the teacher. You know, I always do a home visit and I always ask about how did you two meet as a couple? What was your pregnancy like? And, you know, to get to get a feeling for this child, what were they coming into? And how was their birth? Was it long and ended in a cesarean? And was it a two hour? And it was crazy or was it you know what what was what was the the way they came in and again it's not about judging in any way it's just witnessing of huh sometimes this baby was so eager to be here he was born at eight eight months and breach I mean he just you know and he's been running ever since that kind of thing of sometimes we see when did he learn to walk what 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 was she like with with speaking was that going on early or middle or not till she was three and a half you know that as we witness these things, it tells us, the parents and the teacher, who is this being? And what are what are their characteristic things? What do we what to, what can we know about them? What have we observed so far? So that's why, you know, I always ask those questions. And it is on on many of the of the forms, because the teacher is really trying to form this kind of picture and connection to who is the child. And as I say, I love doing home visits because then I get to see the three-year-old or two or five-year-old in their own environment. I mean, I see their room, I see the pets, I see what the, what it's like, what's it like being you? And I think that's the kind of connection that makes the Waldorf teacher you know, a little bit different from you know, being run through public school and you're one of 35 kids that <clears throat> then goes on to the next teacher the next year. It's really trying to think, who are you? What are your challenges? What are your gifts? What is your task? What's going on? Yes, I remember somebody said to me just maybe a week or two before I had my second son, when pertaining to kind of letting go with just what's going to happen with the birth and letting it happen. And this woman said to me, babies also, they choose how they decide to come. And that I don't know whether you believe that or you not believe that. It's for some for me, it really helped me to just let go of the process and and understand that, you know, what happens in his birth is not my fault or my do I I'm just doing the best that I can. And so is this baby. And that that was really helpful for yeah, me. Absolutely. There's another person involved. You can do everything right, you know, be totally prepared and to eat exactly and plan and da-da-da-da. And you've got somebody else involved in the whole thing as well. And so, and then, and there's the dance of the two of you. So it is, and it's freeing because we're not totally to blame, to be responsible, the bad mother, whatever it is. No, you know, it's, they, they, they are coming in and they, certain things happen and from their side as well as from ours. 
So, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I emphasize that as well. Right. And I think that sometimes people may see these questions on a, a forum to enter school and, and feel, oh, where is this coming from? And it's not explained. So hopefully that can... Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked it for that reason, because it's not from the judgment point of view. It's really from getting getting to know you. I think most of you know by now how much I truly love all things Waldorf. What can I say? It's what I was fortunate enough to get to experience as a child, and now I'm so enjoying learning more about all of it with you listeners as an adult. You know the Waldorf goodies are beautiful, but where do you find that quality selection of Waldorf toys, books, and art supplies? Well, you needn't look any further than Palumba. Palumba, loosely meaning wooden dove, was formed in 2007 to fill the need for the desire to have safe, high-quality, all-natural toys made in the U.S. Palumba's selection of products are carefully chosen to ensure that they're made of wood, wool, silk, and cotton along with other natural materials. Palumba is also the only retailer that features the complete Camden Rose line. Camden Rose's commitment to durability, beauty, natural, and renewable materials make them the American leader in eco-friendly natural toy and children's furniture design. A handful of items come from a women's cooperative in Peru, while the majority of items are made in the U.S. At Palumba, they believe that imaginative, open-ended play with simple toys crafted from beautiful, natural materials offers children warmth and a sense of well-being when discovering their world. If you've listened to this show before or follow on social media, you know that Palumba is my favorite place to get all the quality Waldorf things. I would so love for you to check them out. You can shop their selection of Waldorf toys, books, and art supplies at their website, palumba.com. That's P-A-L-U-M-B-A.com. The other question, I guess, in that realm, and we haven't spoken to this yet, is breastfeeding, because I think people would be a little surprised to find out, I I think, if you're looking at Waldorf education and the Waldorf approach, and if you're interested in it, a lot of people who are, are often drawn towards holistic approaches to most things. And breastfeeding, I think, falls under that umbrella, although people breastfeed whether they from all kinds of belief systems and, you know, obviously cultures and upbringings and whether you are into holistic things or you're not, many people breastfeed and many people don't. And I actually found it interesting and my father-in-law presented this to me or brought it into my line of thinking, I guess, at some point that was Steiner not actually into breastfeeding past one? Uh, That was not part of, he did not give indications either way, or did he give indications that, uh, that breastfeeding until one is best and then not after one? Do you know? I I do because. Okay. (laughs) It's a bit of a hot button item, right? Okay. Yeah. When I was writing You Were Your Child's First Teacher, you know, I had to, I had to get to the bottom of this because a lot of the German pediatricians in the forties, which were the only books that had been translated into English before my book was written, they were like, you better wean by nine months and don't rest. And it's like, you know, this, this felt like, it's, you know, it didn't feel right. It didn't feel holistic. It didn't feel, you know, this prescriptive way of even, you know, weaning sooner. And so I said, well, what did Steiner really say? And so I went to all the anthroposophical doctors and I tried to get, I want chapter and verse. I read German. I want the Gesamte Ausgaben. I want the, you know, collected works. I want to know where he said whatever. And Steiner really didn't address it. And you have to understand that, you know, in his lectures and and people, you know, attending them and so forth, uh, 
breastfeeding was not one of the big topics that were talked about in 1920. So um, what they said was that in, you know, he never addressed it specifically and that in a, a letter to somebody with a specific situation, he might have said da 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 da, but he didn't really talk about breastfeeding in the in the scheme of it. And so, you know, for me, it's, again, you have to take your cues from the baby and from yourself and from your relationship as a couple, both with your husband, but also with your child of what's this dance like between us. And around the nine months to one year time, the child, the baby, the infant is starting to go out. They're starting to walk. They're starting to go away from mother. They're interested in everything. They're grabbing food off of the table. You know, there, there is a time, it's, there is a, a, a reaching out that doesn't mean you have to wean or doesn't mean, you know, but it's just to be aware of what is the impulse. And some children do wean naturally around that time. Others, the breastfeeding changes into more cuddling time, more in terms of going to sleep or something like that. It's a change. So be aware of that as a change. And, you know, many cultures breastfeed till the age of two. And yeah, and in other cultures, consciousness is different. You know, we can't say, oh, well, in the Amazon, the, the indigenous people are, you know, they have a different consciousness than we do too. So it's really uh, not a prescriptive thing of saying, oh, do it at six months or nine months or 12 months or eight, oh, don't go on beyond. So that's, that's really, you have to look at. And I think that people look, as mothers, we have to look at, are we afraid of weaning? Are we afraid of, oh, I don't want this to end. I don't want my baby to grow. You know, what are your emotional things? I don't want my baby to grow up. I'm pregnant. Am I going to be able to love this baby and this child in the same way if they're not breastfeeding anymore? You look at your own side of things as well and realize that the weaning, the ability to withstand distance, that goes on all the time. I have this kind of opposite theory of bonding. You know, bonding is from the external view of trying to create the connection. The mother and the baby are totally connected before they're born, right? They, they can't be any more connected. And so birth happens, this separation, and we need the contact. We need the uninterrupted skin to skin so that it's not so much of a shock, so that that, that connection is allowed to have a little bit of distance. And then weaning is being able to have a little bit more distance and realizing that love comes in so many ways. And, you know, you show your love in so many ways. And then the first time you leave them, you know, with a babysitter, oh my gosh, you know, your breasts fill and you're like, are they all right? And then the first time they go off to a childcare or to, a, to school. And then when they drive, you know, at 16, it's like, can you withstand that much distance? You know, and this, that's, that's kind of my opposite theory of bonding is that, it's being increasingly able to tolerate distance. Yes, it's all so far in my parenting journey, which hasn't been that long yet, but it just feels like such an intense journey of letting go, which has honestly helped me as a human so much in my own involvement and development. And I, I, it's challenging, but I love it. I briefly just want to touch on your book before we wrap up here. Uh, your book, You Are Your Child's First Teacher, is an amazing resource and you go into much more depth about lots of the things that we've touched on today in your book. And what is the best place for us to send listeners to find your book um, if they're looking for it? Uh, Amazon. Yeah, just easy. <laughs> okay. And I will put a link to it on the website too then to Amazon. 
And where else can people, uh, listeners, connect with you? Is Life LifeWays is the best place to do that? Yeah, I'm offering online courses through LifeWays North America. And LifeWays was developed to try to translate Steiner's insights into childcare for both parents and for childcare settings. And so there's just a whole lot of support for professionals and for parents. And I offer a course on birth to three. Uh, once or twice a year through LifeWays, another online course on inspired homemaking, you know, say now you're home with a child. Oh my gosh, what, what, you know, how can this be meaningful? How can this be, what, you know, what, where do I put my attention on this? So through LifeWays North America is a great way to be in touch with me. I also recommend the website Beginning Well. It's www.beginningwell.org. It's a Waldorf Rye oriented um, website for the very early years, birth to, let's say, three. So that's another good resource. Great. Well, thank you so much. I am so looking forward to checking out LifeWaysNorthAmerica.org more for myself. I just had this conversation with Faith last week, uh, your daughter, about LifeWays. And I just had not – I thought it was more for uh, educators. I had no idea, like Inspired Homemaking. I can't, Maybe we had talked about that before, but I'm so excited to check out that course now. Uh, so thank you so much for – for sharing those resources. And thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's a pleasure. I, I enjoy talking with you and also reaching parents out there because that's, it is, it's a joyful journey and we're all so naive. We got no clue. And so I, uh, you know, the clues, the clues are wonderful and sharing them and then watching them in our children. See if they fit. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And now I'm going to be speaking with Lynn and Paige from Sakura Bloom. Lynn and Paige, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast to speak with me all about Sakura Bloom today. I am a huge Sakura Bloom fan, as you both know already. So I'm wondering if we can get started by you telling us your story. Sure. I'd love to tell you that story. I'm Lynn, by the way, speaking. I'm the founder of Sakura Bloom. And I started it way back in 2006 when my daughter was born. She's going into her junior year of high school this year. So it's been quite a while. And the way that that happened was when she was born, my sister gave me a bunch of different carriers. She introduced me to baby wearing. And my mom was a seamstress growing up and I couldn't find what I wanted on the market. So I created it. And our ring slings were born, silk ring slings. And we made them kind of like into an artisan style, something that wasn't being done. So we launched at the end of 2006. And I had sewn everything myself. I cut and sewed the majority of the carriers for the first six months, I would say, until it got to be too much. And I ended up finding someone local, a woman, a mom with two kids who helped me sew the slings for the next maybe five years. And it was just her and I. So for the first few years, it was just very small. And then it really started to grow. And she couldn't, she just couldn't handle it anymore. And so we found a really amazing team of people working in Massachusetts, where we live, that could help us make the slings. And so at that that point, our manufacturing moved from in-house, literally in a basement, to an actual cut and sew facility where we didn't have to do the shipping anymore and that kind of stuff. And that really opened up what Sucorblum looked like in terms of a business for me because I didn't have to be so hands-on, um, like moving the fabric from place to place. We could have things delivered there. And so we decided to move. And at that point, we moved to Colorado for a few years because my sister was living there. 
and we kept everything going. So we were there for a few years and it was still too cold. That was one of the reasons that we wanted to leave. And so we made a trip out to San Diego and I just fell in love. And one of my best friends, Robin, who owned a baby carrier company called Baby Hawk at the time, lived here in San Diego and was like, you should, you should come out, come live here. And we were like, okay. And so we did. So when we moved to California, we lived near my friend Robin and she had just sold her company and was looking for work. And so we decided to come together and we hired her as our production manager because things were getting difficult because we were on the West Coast and things were still being made on the East Coast. So it was okay, but it could definitely be a lot better. So that's what happened is we rented a workshop here in San Diego in Oceanside, actually, to be exact, which we're still there. We make everything there. And we started making them in-house again, a bit in our own workshop. And so this has been the dream since day one is to have small batch production. We really didn't want to go in a direction of mass production or outside of the United States. We wanted to keep it here, keep it intentional and um, really keep textiles out of the landfill, which was a big piece from us from the beginning. But as we started to grow is where we really started to feel the impacts of that. And so that's what we've been able to do. So Robin is our production manager and we've kept it small. There's just a few of us on the team. Like Paige here is our baby wearing educator and has been here for a few years, four years. So in the evolution of Sakura Bloom, there evolved from the ring sling to other carriers. Can you tell us about each carrier that you offer? Hi, I'm Paige. I am our baby wearing educator and we do offer three different styles of carriers. The ring sling that we started with in 2006. It's a simple, beautiful carrier, one shoulder, and amazing for newborns, toddlers, and everything in between because you can really just pop it over your shoulder like a purse and set them down. They're cozy and you do have your hands free. We also have our Scout, which is a two-shoulder carrier with a waistband. Looks pretty familiar to more of the structured carriers you see on the market, but we've done it with ring waist and We offer leather or no leather and all of our beautiful textiles. That one you can also use from birth to 45 pounds and it can be used on your front or your back. We released the Scout in 2017, like right before Christmas. Um, I remember that because that's the year that my son was born. I was super excited about the carrier. We also have our Ambu Himo that came out in July of 2017 and that is a waistless Asian-inspired care that really shines on your back. It can also be used on the front, and it provides two shoulders of support, but baby sets really nice and high, and they get this great world-facing view where they can also curl up on your neck and fall asleep, and you don't need to turn them around or adjust them at all. I have to say, that's kind of what's so wonderful to me about Sakura Bloom. I have uh, a ring sling and a scout and I have a three-month-old and he's so close to me. I find in other carriers that I had tried with my first son, it was just like so clunky and so much stuff. And the textiles were so, they weren't natural fibers and they were so stuffy and sweaty that I wasn't very comfortable. And I really, and like with infant inserts and stuff, it was just like too much and I couldn't handle it. Um, And with my second, baby wearing became a necessity. It's like the only way I can get anything done is with him on me and sleeping on me. And I think I was telling you this page that it's hard when you have your second and third and fourth, I'm sure that it feels like there's so much attention on your older children. And then um, when I'm wearing my little one close, it feels like I'm giving him all of the things he needs in that moment and still being able to meet the needs of my older child. So for me, I just love that. They're so minimal. And that's kind of what I feel has made baby wearing for me so much more comfortable than with any other carrier. And I love the textiles. So I am a textile nerd. 
I'm sure both of you are as well. And I was totally drawn in by the beautiful textiles. I'm wondering if you can tell me now how you choose the textiles, uh, the natural fibers. I'm completely fascinated. Tell me all about the textiles. So for the textiles, it really is with baby wearing all about the textiles. And I think from day one, that's been the most exciting thing for us outside of the obvious benefits of baby wearing and having your little one close um, is the textiles. And so what we've chosen and what we found wasn't on the market at the time was things that really made sense. And so things that breathe really well, natural fibers, um, things that wash well, breathe well, and are supportive and comfortable. All of those things are really come forth in the textiles that with the fibers that we've chosen. And so we started with silk, which is our absolute favorite for pretty much anyone. So we've had Dupioni silk from day one, and it's just the most amazing textile for baby wearing. It has, the fibers are very short. If you think about the size of a silk cocoon, they're very short. And so when they're spun together and then pulled on your body, when you cinch the carrier to your body, it has a tiny bit of give to the yarns, the threads, um, without giving it any stretch. And so it allows the carrier to mold to your body. So as you and baby move about your day, the carrier molds moves with you um, rather than stretching out or creating any pressure points. Silk is also extremely strong and supportive. And so for heavier babies and toddlers, we're always going to steer someone towards a silk carrier. The other thing about it is that it's extremely lightweight and breathable. So for water play or the summer, it's really, really great fiber for that, but it also works well in the winter as it insulates too. And then we also have linen. So linen is actually our most popular fiber that we sell. We love our linen. We actually pre-wash it and tumble dry it to make it a little bit softer so that right out of the box, it's ready for those perfect cozy snuggles. We do a lot of garment dyeing for it so we can get our perfect color mix. We also have bamboo. Our theory collection is bamboo with just a kiss of linen so that it provides a little more structure to the fibers as they mold around. It feels so soft, like a vegan cashmere. It's very thermoregulating and has a lot of cush and is just perfect against newborn skin. That one is a crowd favorite, especially in the winter as we're kind of thinking about fall and winter seasons. It's really lovely. And... Then we also sometimes will throw in a few dead stocks or different fabrics that we find really interesting. We live really close to LA, so we have some advantage in choosing (laughs) fabrics that kind of catch our eye and and Mm -hmm. doing our in-house manufacturing. Let's talk about the benefits of baby wearing. What are they? Oh my goodness. Could go on about that all day, (laughs) really. Um, I have three kiddos and I started wearing with my daughter from day one. I found Sakura Bloom pretty early and was in love with the ring slings too. So I can definitely connect with you on that. Babies who are worn from birth are going to be a little bit better regulated. They have um, thermoregulation cues from the caregiver who's wearing them. They receive that from being skin to skin. And there's been so many studies about that. They cry less. Breastfeeding or chest feeding is often easier established when baby's really close and receiving those cues on your chest and heart to heart. And as they get older, it also just gives the caregiver a lot more time and space to do the things that they need to do while still meeting baby's needs because a baby who is worn is, is going to cry less. They also get a ton of 
incredible socio-emotional input, being face-to-face with you and being able to read your social cues, see how you respond to things, hear the difference in your voice, both from their ear and also the vibrations on your chest, incredible for developing language. And then babies who have a safe space are going to also regulate and feel a little bit more independent as they get older, often earlier, because they know that they have that safe space to come back and recover um, and check in when they need it. And as we just talked about, actually, in this episode, it's also makes the transition from kind of womb to outside world so much more gentle, doesn't it? Because they were inside and now they're just on the other side, right against you. That's how I felt, at least with my little one. Absolutely. So I, I'll totally date myself a little bit. But when I got started baby wearing, there was an organization called Nino, which stood for nine in out that really promoted baby wearing, especially in the first nine months postpartum as a continuation of that womb experience. So as a big Sakura Bloom fan, I know that your fall line is dropping so soon in a couple days, actually. So can you tell us about the projects that you have going on right now and anything about the fall drop just happening in a couple of days? Yes, we're really excited to launch our fall collection this Thursday, the 26th. And these are items that are really special, but we are hoping we'll be around a little bit for everyone to enjoy through the entire season. We do have a lot of our tried and true classics, our basic linens. We have lots of beautiful new silk colors coming. And then we do have a collection that is very exciting. And you'll need to pop over to our Instagram to see the full details. But it is those cozy, supportive, natural fibers with a little bit of pop and texture and some really fun surprises. So do you alternate textiles that are better for warmer weather in summer and then something warmer in the fall? And is there anything warm and snuggly that we can look forward to in this fall line? There is. We're pretty excited about it. Actually, a few things. It's not even just one. We do. In the summer, we tend to really push our silks because they're great for the beach. And like I mentioned before, water play. But this fall, we have some new things coming that like you will need to pop in for. Very cozy, very warm, great for getting out and adventuring. And everybody's been inside for the past year and a half. And I think these carriers are going to help you help you get outside and do that. And then we also have one that we are bringing back from the archives that um, we're also pretty excited about natural fibers that are super insulating, very, very soft and supportive, and really just like the most cozy, snuggly, sweater-worthy hug you could think of. As somebody who lives in a cold climate, I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to this. So, so, so much. So this has been such a great conversation about baby wearing, about the textiles that you offer. I'm wondering what of all the projects that you have worked on, what has given you the most joy? Our compassion project, without a doubt, is Uh, the project that we would be most proud of. And I think I speak for both Paige and I here. It's something that we've worked together on really closely since we introduced it a few years ago. And what it is, is taking scraps. We mentioned that we have, it's a zero waste project basically. And we take our scraps and we've sent them to artists around the world and had them weave us textiles from our scraps. And we've turned those into artisan carriers and auctioned them off for charities, Um, mostly nonprofits doing amazing things around the world, mostly for women and children. Yeah. With the Compassion Project, we've been able to fundraise $109,000 
$10,000. And we have sent that to organizations like Circle of Health International that is doing a lot of incredible work for women and children in refugee and resettlement situations around the world. We've donated to Feeding America and the United Negro Fund. It's all just really wonderful opportunities to take some of the textiles that we love but aren't really useful anymore and turn them into a beautiful piece of art, share it with the community and give back. I love that. And for listeners that are interested in that project, you actually have a whole page on your website that talks more about that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. There's some really beautiful imagery and a few links to kind of click through and see some of the stories behind the artists that we've worked with. Fantastic. Well, I know I can speak for myself and I'm sure some listeners that you know, we're so excited for uh, the fall line to be going live this Thursday, the 26th. And listeners who want to learn more about Sakura Bloom can visit your website at sakurabloom.com and follow you on Instagram where you're going to be talking more about the new fall line, I'm sure, especially Thursday when it's dropping. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to share with the listeners before we wrap it up here? I think we'd just like to thank you, Ashley, for having us here. This has been really fun for us, and we love what you're doing. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having us. It's been a wonderful conversation, and we're really excited to see many more babies snuggled up in beautiful natural carriers. Wonderful. Thank you both so much for speaking with me. Thank you. Thank you all for listening in. As a reminder, and I mentioned it back at the beginning of this episode, you can get free shipping for your order at sakurabloom.com by using the coupon code Waldorfie at checkout. Know that the show notes and resources page for this episode can be found at waldorfie.com forward slash Waldorf babies. Big thanks to Waldorfie podcast partners, Palumba and Sparkle Stories for helping me to bring this content to you. You can shop Palumba's selection of Waldorf toys, books, and art supplies at palumba.com and be sure to visit sparklestories.com forward slash sign up to check out Sparkle Stories. And don't forget to use the coupon code Waldorfie there for this special for Waldorfie listeners so that you can get access to an extended 30-day trial of their incredible selection of original audio stories crafted to entertain and enrich your child's developing mind. A super special thanks to our generous Waldorfie Patreon supporters. You can check out patreon.com forward slash Waldorfie to learn more about becoming a supporter. And that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Another great way to support the show is by writing a review. The best place to do this is Apple Podcasts, although technically I think you can write reviews on most podcast listening platforms. You can also subscribe to the show. That's the best compliment that you'd like to listen to each and every episode. You can also support by following along on social media. You can find Waldorfie at B Waldorfie, that's B-E Waldorfie on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. But I'm definitely the most active on Instagram. Big thanks again to all of you listening in. Be well.